Romans chapter ten. Okay, um, guys, we're gonna we're gonna read through uh, the first fourteen verses. Then we're gonna go back on these fourteen verses. We're gonna look at them kind of uh, specifically and individually. Um, and I really have so for the message tonight, um, the Lord has really been put on my heart over the last few months. Uh, I've been really diving into and studying prophecy. I've been studying. Uh, and times prophecy. Uh, and at the same time, I've been studying and uh, times prophecy. I've been studying uh, really beginnings of times history. Um, I, I love ancient history, uh, and so we're going to look at some ancient history as well as some end time prophecy uh, and how that really ties in very well with what Romans has. And as Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome, so picking up. In verse 1 of chapter 10, it says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear witness, uh, I, I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness is to everyone who believes. For Moses writes down that righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who is to descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus uh, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same is Lord over all, and he is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Dear Jesus, we just pray that tonight as we spend these next few moments looking at your perfect word, the law of liberty. God, I pray that each and every single one of us, that we would just be uh, inspired by your word. Uh, God, I pray that we would learn uh, from history, that we would learn from past mistakes. Uh, God, and that we would stay focused on you, that we would live and strive for righteousness. Uh, God, and that in doing so, we would long to see others come to the saving knowledge of you. So, God, we just pray that tonight none of these would be my words, but, God, that you would speak through me. Uh, anything that would be of me may fall uh, to the ground. Um, but, God, that your perfect word uh, would touch our hearts and our lives. So, God, we just thank you. We praise you. In your son's name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. 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 How many of you all are taking notes tonight? All right. So, so we got a few. Uh, if you're taking notes, um, I this title is nothing profound, uh, but the title of tonight's message is, from one apostasy to the next. Uh, it was the only thing that came to my mind, but, but it'll make sense in just a little bit. Um, and really the theme of tonight's message is to stay alert uh, and stay grounded in God's word. Uh, so as we read through these first uh, 14 verses of chapter 10 of the book of Romans, uh, we begin to see Paul point out some things. And I really want to focus on the first three verses uh, up front. It says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. First and foremost, 
Paul, when he says brethren, he's writing not only to his brethren and his kinsmen, uh, the Israelites, he's writing to his brethren who are uh, Christians. So Jews and Christians, both Jew and Gentile. But his prayer and his heart for Israel, uh, his family, uh, his, his, his friends, his community, is that they may be saved. Uh, this verse is a verse that I think really, really uh, is going to speak to a lot of maybe our friends and our family members today. Check this out. Uh, for I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Um, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Here's the reality, as I raise up my music stand. The reality is that people want to be spiritual. Uh, there is an allure about the things that are spiritual. Uh, there's an allure about the things that we don't understand and we don't know. Uh, and, and all people really want to be spiritual. Now, I'm not saying everybody wants to be a Christian, uh, because obviously not everybody wants to be a Christian. A vast majority of the world is Islamic. A vast majority of the world is Hindu. Uh, smaller pockets are Jewish. Other small pockets are uh, Buddhist or Confucianism, uh, Taoism, uh, Baha'i religion. Uh, you have Sikhism. You have um, mysticism. mysticism. You have uh, tribal religions. You have, um, I mean, you name it, like uh, Wicca and uh, from from... Every corner of the earth, people desire and want to understand spiritual things. Um, now, we're going to get to peoples in just a second, but Paul is focusing here very specifically on the Jews. He said, and I, I bear witness about them. I used to be one of these people. I had a zeal and a passion for God. Remember, Paul, Paul says elsewhere, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, and, and, and Pharisee, uh, from a Christian standpoint, we kind of, Pharisees have a bad rap, you know? Uh, but from a Jewish standpoint, the Pharisees, these are the dudes. They are the Bible scholars of their time. So, I mean, Paul was passionate and he was zealous about God and about the things of God, but... He was not having this zeal and this passion according to knowledge. Proverbs tells us that knowledge is the, begin, uh, uh, it, it, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Uh, and, and, and same with wisdom, the understanding, really being able to understand uh, what spiritual things are about and what they are for. Uh, and Paul here explicitly says in verse 3, For being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. In essence, what Paul is saying is knowledge and true knowledge that f fuels uh, fervor and passion and zealousness uh, comes from the righteousness of God, understanding righteousness according to the righteousness of God, not according to some man-made righteousness. And, and at this point, the first century, uh, second half of the first century, um, Paul can say truthfully of Judaism uh, they are zealous for God, but they are not righteous. They are trying to establish their own thing. Uh, it's a form of godliness denying the power. And uh, the Israelites are not the first people to do this. 
Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit more about the Israelites in just a second, but flip back with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 1, because this portion of Scripture actually sounds really reminiscent of how Paul opens uh, his letter to the Romans. We get this whole, like, uh, greetings, hello, I'm Paul, uh, I wish to come to Rome, that sounds awesome. Verse 116 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then we get into verse 18, really through the rest of the chapter, uh, and we're going to get some diagnosis of mankind um, and a justification for why God has wrath on mankind. Uh, what I want us to pick up, is verse 21. It says this, because although they knew God, the Jews, like in chapter 10, here the they is the people of the world. This is people of the world pre-flood. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and bird and four-footed animal and creepy thing. Therefore God gave them over to their uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. We're going to stop there. There's a lot of other stuff that's talked about uh, in, in, in Romans chapter 1. But the, the thing I want us to focus on is we have a people who knew God, but... Even though they knew God, they wanted to be wise in their own eyes. And they, uh, they go down a path, just like the Jews who are zealous for God but don't want to do it God's way. Um, and so the people pre-flood, uh, we can read about them all in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Uh, the earth gets populated quite big before the flood. Uh, and there were people who knew God, but the majority of people, they knew of God, but they were completely against God. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24 that it, uh, before the end comes, it'll be like the days of Noah, where people were uh, partaking in mass murder and war, and there was uh, sexual uh, immorality that was running rampant, and things, there was just this general distaste about God in people's hearts. Uh, we have many history uh, sources and documents um, that we could go to that talk all about what was happening uh, before the flood. We're not going to do that tonight, uh, but it'd be a fun topic for, for uh, a coffee date or something. But uh, there, there, there's some really, really interesting things that were taking place before the flood. Um, the religion that existed before the flood, we know what that religion was and what it uh, consisted of. Uh, the, the the form of godliness yet denying the power, the man being wise in his own eyes and, and giving into the foolishness and, and rejecting God. There's so much there uh, that, that we could look at. But uh, tonight we're only going to focus on a little bit of it. Um, there was a guy who lived before the flood. Uh, his name was Enoch. Uh, and Enoch, uh, the Bible tells us that uh, he lived for a certain amount of time. Uh, and then he was no more, for God took him. Uh, he walked with God, and then he was no more, because God took him. Um, pretty amazing story. Uh, this guy lives 365 years, and then God takes him away. Uh, and it, that that's not the Hebrew word for that he died. It, it literally means God catches him up, takes him away. He's a live person, and he is a live person as he's being taken up into heaven. Uh, it happened to Elijah, and it's going to happen to the church. Uh, in the future at some uh, undisclosed date. Um, but Enoch is a very, very 
uh, important individual. And we know from Jewish history uh, and secular history that he was a righteous man of the Lord, uh, that he had been a king over certain regions uh, pre-flood, and that he led a great revival trying to bring people back to the creator God, but the general unruliness of the world uh, really was taking over. And there's a reason why the flood came. And man had gotten to this place of just evil and debauchery was running wild. Um, But that is the first apostasy, the first apostasy or falling away, uh, a a knowledge and a knowing of God, but a falling away from God. Uh, And we see that here in Romans chapter 1. Uh, I brought for uh, us tonight, uh, this should be fun, uh, it's, it's some extra biblical reading, um, because I think there's some really, really cool things uh, that we can learn from history and that we can learn from Jewish tradition. Um, so Enoch, uh, tradition holds that Enoch wrote a book. Uh, it, it, tradition tells us that Enoch actually invented uh, written language, and, and, and so Enoch was able to take what we speak and put letters on paper, and uh, things began to be written on um, clay tablets and on papyrus and all these different things. Uh, and supposedly, uh, according to the Jewish legend, Enoch writes this book. Uh, it's called the Book of Enoch, and it gets passed down. It, it gets given to Noah, his grandson, gets taken on the ark. Uh, after after uh, the ark settles and everything, uh, the Jews had it, and they possessed it, and it was it was a part of uh, their holy scriptures, but it wasn't a part of their uh, their Bible, per se, uh, and it, it was used. Uh, the Bible actually quotes from the book of Enoch on multiple occasions, uh, explicitly Jude quotes uh, word for word from the book of Enoch. The early church fathers uh, used the book of Enoch as uh, a teaching point. They never said it should be a part of the Bible, so I'm not up here saying, hey guys, come to Bible study and let's study the book of Enoch because it should be in the Bible. It shouldn't. And uh, interestingly enough, we're going to see when we look at it tonight uh, that it says of itself that it should not be added to the Bible. And I'll explain that in just a little bit. Yeah, and, 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 and so, so we'll get to that in just a little bit. But what's really interesting is that from about the 2nd century to the early 3rd century, uh, the book of Enoch just disappears. Uh, it literally is, just, just like Enoch got taken away, uh, any known text of the book of Enoch disappeared from known history, um, except for the Ethiopian church. The Ethiopian church, they split off from uh, the more mainstream church uh, before the Council of, the, uh, of Nicaea, before canon was established, and they take the Book of Enoch with them down to Ethiopia. It's it translated into Gies, which is the Ethiopian language. It's actually based off of Hebrew. It's really cool. And uh, it just sits dormant in these ancient libraries in Ethiopia until the 1800s when it gets discovered, and someone's like, this is amazing. Like, let's translate this. This actually has some good stuff in it. So it got translated, and there, there was a lot of controversy of, we should add it to the Bible. It's an ancient book. And other people were like, no, we should not add it to the Bible, blah, 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 blah. And people were like, is it a real document, or did the Ethiopians make it up because it only exists in the Ethiopian? And people were like, well, no, the Greek uh, historians uh, that are Christians, they talk about it, but we don't have any copies in Greek. So what's going on? Well, then in 1948... Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, or, or 1946, the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, uh, and guess what happens to be among one of the things in the Dead Sea Scrolls? 
the Book of Enoch, and there are several copies and, and, and fragments of the Book of Enoch that existed over a hundred years before Jesus walked the earth. So this is this is an ancient document. And then they found in the 1960s in the Dead Sea Scrolls a full Aramaic version of the Book of Enoch, front to back, nothing missing. It's not just it's not like fragments here and there in Hebrew. It is a full copy of Aramaic that is about 50 BC ish. Uh, and so this is predating Jesus, predating the New Testament, full copy that matches word for word the Ethiopian copy. So the Ethiopian copy is a pretty good uh, translation and, and a pretty good understanding of what the original said. Now, did Enoch really write it? Did it really go on Noah's Ark? That's all legend, but it's all historical narrative to the Jews. So whether or not we are never going to know. But the truth that is found in the book of Enoch is, is very, very poignant. And the cool thing about the book of Enoch is it never contradicts scripture. It actually affirms things in scripture over and over again. It has over 70 prophecies about Messiah and when Messiah will come, how Messiah will come. It talks about the end of time. The book of Revelation is literally a carbon copy of many of the things that are talked about in the book of Enoch. These things, they line up so perfectly. And so it's really, really interesting. But the book of Enoch, let's just say for the excitement of, of our study tonight, let's say Enoch wrote it. And let's say this is a very ancient book. Enoch writes about uh, the apostasy that was taking place at his time, but he also writes about a future apostasy that will take place. And he says the main reason the future apostasy will take place is because people start misusing God's word and misusing God's holy scriptures. Um, the book of Enoch talks about there will be a collection of books and he's talking future tense because this is pre-flood. He's but, but he's saying there will be a group of the righteous, which is a word that Paul uses here in Romans, and he says that the righteous will have a collections of books that they will live their lives by, they will be judged by at the end of days when God Almighty judges man, he will judge them by these holy righteous books. He's talking about scripture. And he says that his book is never to be added to the righteous books, but that his book is going to be held and kept away until the last generation. And then it will be found and it will be made widely known. And all of the prophecies from his book will begin to unfold in this time. It's very interesting that we didn't find this book until right around the turn of, of the 20th century. Uh, and some of the events that took place in the 20th century are some things that prophetically say that we are living in the last days and in the end times. Uh, and so it's just very, if this is the construction of man, uh, they had a very good foresight as to when this book should really be found again. Um, so I'm leaning towards the fact that uh, there is some truth, if not full truth to this. Now, yet again, disclaimer, the book of Enoch should not be added to scripture. If I were to say the book of Enoch should be added to scripture, it means I didn't read the book of Enoch because it said it shouldn't be added to scripture. Uh, we should not treat the book of Enoch like scripture. We should not treat it as 100% truth. Hom the only thing that's 100% truth is God's word. Um, but the things in Enoch that line up with scripture, if they, if they affirm scripture and line up with scripture, then we can take them as truth. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay.
So here's some things that it says. It says, Woe to you godless who glory in lying uh, and extolling liars. Your life will be an unhappy one. And then you will perish. Woe to them who pervert the words of the righteous and transgress the eternal law and try to transform themselves into what they were not, namely sinless. Uh, it goes on to say that in those days, nations will be stirred up and families of the nations will arise in the day of destruction. Um, what he's saying here is, uh, woe to those people who are trying to be righteous in their own eyes and change the word of God to fit what they want it to mean. He goes on to talk about, uh, he goes on to talk about many of the things that are going to be there in the last um, the, the last great apostasy, uh, Enoch explicitly says, in those days they will abort and mangle their own children and they will abandon them. Uh, again, I swear to you, uh, sinners, that uh, there's a day prepared for you. He goes on to talk about they will worship graven images of gold and silver and wood and stone. Um, they will worship impure spirits and demons uh, according to their knowledge, not his knowledge. Um I, I like this line, and they will get no manner of help from their idols. I mean, we know, and Scripture affirms, that there is no power in idols, but there is power in God. Uh, and we know also that these idols that mo many people worship, it's just demonic presences, uh, and there is a great falling away that is going to take place. And Paul tells about it uh, in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. John talks about it in the book of Revelation, that there's going to be this falling away when the church begins to dabble with some of these things. And I'm going to get to those things in just a second. Um, lastly, I just want to talk about, uh, uh, quote one more part from him. But he talks about uh, that, uh, do, do not be like the godless in your hearts. Do not lie or alter the words of the righteous books, nor change uh, or, or charge the holy great one um, with lying and do not glory in your idols for all of your lying and all of your godless issues are not in righteousness, but in great sin. Now I know uh, that this, there is a mystery that the sinners will alter and pervert the words of the righteous books in many ways and will speak wicked words and lie and practice great deceits and write their own books concerning their own words. Uh, and then he goes on to say in, in, in three short verses, don't add this to scripture lest you be like those ungodly sinners. Uh, we have a very righteous book. It is the word of God. It is, as Paul says here in Romans chapter 10, he says, uh, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. Christ, the Word, the Christos, the Logos, the Word, John 14, 6 tells us is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God's Word has final say. And just like in the days of Noah, when you had these people saying, whatever God has to say, whatever, we're going to do our own thing. God sent a flood. There was destruction. Here in Romans chapter 10, we see Israel trying to do their own thing. They have rejected Messiah, and they are trying to now attain salvation their own way. They are rejecting God. And we're going to see that 
there is a day coming where the church is going to fall subject to many of these same things, where they try to establish themselves above the word of God, where the church will apostatize. Now, not everyone in the church, but there will be pockets in the church that begin to apostatize, uh, that have a form of godliness uh, denying the power. They will begin to alter scripture. Have, have any of you ever seen uh, someone professing to be a Christian use scripture in a non-scriptural way, use scripture in a non-Christian way, use scripture to further their own agenda? That is very unhealthy, and that is a sign of things that are coming. Um, here's here's another thing for Moses this is verse 5 of Romans chapter 10 for Moses writes that the righteousness which is of the law the man who does these things shall live by them but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down from above or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead in essence what these two verses are saying is who are we to tell Christ where he can and cannot go Christ sits at the right hand of Father, uh, God, and is omnipresent, is omnipowerful, is omnipotent. Jesus is God, and who are we to tell him where he can and cannot go? But there are those inside Christianity, let alone outside of Christianity, but those inside Christianity who tell Jesus what he should do. Tell God what he, you hear it sometimes when people pray. Jesus, do this. Jesus, do that. Do this. Do that. Um, there is actually a word in religious studies for when you pray and you tell the deity or the entity that you are praying to what to do. You want to know what the term? There's two terms in religious studies for that kind of prayer. Term one, divining. You're controlling the spirits and telling them what to do. Okay, maybe divining isn't a word that we use. Here's one that we use, sorcery. When we pray and we tell God what to do or what he should do, that's a form of sorcery, which when you look at what Paul talks about the great apostasy being, the church begins to dabble in sorcery. When you look at what John says in Revelation, oh, the church begins to dabble in sorcery. You begin to look at what was said in the book of Enoch and in the book of Ezekiel in uh, Daniel. The church begins to dabble in sorcery. It's one of many other things that are listed. But we have to be very, very careful that we do not have this righteousness that is not a godly righteousness, but that is our own righteousness where we think we get to control Jesus. Well, maybe we don't actually think that, but how many times have we ever tried to make Jesus fit to us? Jesus fit to our schedules. Jesus fit to our agendas as opposed to making our agendas and our ideas and our thoughts fit to Jesus. I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of saying, all right, Jesus, hey, I'm pretty fine where I am. Why don't you change your plan to do what I like? And we do that so often without even thinking about it. Here's a little newsflash, and I think it's something that Paul would say. Every time we sin, we're doing that. When, when we sin, we say, Jesus, your way is good, but I'm going to do my thing. Hope you're okay with it. That's a dangerous place to live. Because Paul says, those are people, they are zealous for God, but not according 
to knowledge. I, I do not want that to be the outside testimony of my life. Oh my goodness, Matt, he is zealous for God, but he has no knowledge. He's doing it of his own righteousness. That's We don't get to say, Jesus, hey, come down from the right hand. Or we don't get to say, hey, Jesus, why don't you come up from there? No. What does Paul go on to say? He says, but w- what does it say? He says, the word is near your heart and in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith, which we preach. And what is that word? That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. That is the only truth that matters. Jesus Christ is Lord. That word Lord there is the Greek word kurios, which literally means owner, which means master. It's the same word that's referenced in the Old Testament when it talks about Jehovah, Jehovah being Lord. Uh, we this is a this is another way we can see Jesus is God. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is our Kurios. Um, and I think the really important thing about this is uh, that Jesus is the Word of God. John tells us that and makes it very clear. Uh, and not only uh, does Jesus show us how to live, uh, He teaches us how to love. Uh, not only does He teach us how to live and how to love. Um, I think. Josh was going over some sermon notes with me uh, for, for a series that they're doing uh, on the Word of God on, on Wednesday nights. And he was talking about uh, the, 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 the light, the love, the life. I, I forget what your other L was. It was a good uh, uh, Lord? Oh, yeah. Jesus is Lord. There we go. The curios. Um, when you look at the book of 1 John, 1 John is broken into three sections. Experiencing the life, experiencing the light, and experiencing the love of the Word of God. Uh, God's word, Jesus Christ, uh, has something for us. And when we try and do it our own way, we are having a form of godliness. We are having a zeal about God without knowledge. And we deny the true power that comes when we submit ourselves to the word of God. Because the word of God is truth. And there is nothing but the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. What does it say? It says, for the word of God, this is God breathed. Scripture is God breathed. It is given of God for reproof, for instruction, for correction, for righteousness. So, 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 so that we can know what it means to live for God fully in everything that we do. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Here's the thing. If you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ... And, and you trust and you believe what the word of God says, you cannot be put to shame. You cannot be put to shame. So I've seen on Facebook, and, and, the, and there was a group that was talking beforehand today, uh, the, the, this evening, um, about Facebook now. And it's, it's nowhere near as bad as it was two weeks ago, let alone three, four weeks ago. Uh, Facebook was a very violent place to be. Uh, and there was a lot of bashing going around politically. What got really scary was when there was a lot of bashing that was going on religiously. And I saw people on the right and on the left and north and south, like people coming from all different places, swinging around the Bible like it's some sort of battle axe or sword. I, pe- people going around saying, you have to hate Trump if you're a Christian, or you have to love Trump if you're a Christian. Uh, you have to agree 100% with him if you're a Christian. You have to disagree with him. 
so many things and people were just like pulling Bible verses that like, oh, that one says things about butterflies. That's good. Grab it. And like people were just totally misusing, misquoting and throwing God's word around to fit their agendas. For they were ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. So, I did something that I hate doing. I said, I'm going to get involved in one of these Facebook conversations. And the reason I was going to get involved with it was not because I wanted to show how smart I was and make a point about, you're wrong, I'm right. I saw one person say something. And they, they were saying it as a conservative right-wing Christian. And what they said, it had some things that were politically correct, but had some things that were scripturally incorrect. Now, as an American, I was like, I agree with you as a patriot. But as a Christian, don't bring that in because you're misusing it. So that guy was on the one side. And then there was this dude who was from the opposite side, very left-wing, liberal yet was coming in with his understanding and knowledge of the Bible. And these guys, it was like the sword and battle axe clashed, and they were both saying what Scripture said. Sadly, they were both saying it wrong. So me, I'm not going to come in and try and show what the right or the left should say. I'm going to say there's only one thing that we should turn to, and it's Scripture. Let's look actually what it says. And so I wrote more words than I've ever written on Facebook. And I've made this ex- – I, I never poked fun at anyone. I never said you're wrong. I never said blah, 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 blah. I just said this is what Scripture says. This is what it says, and you can't argue with it because it's the Word of God, and it's truth. And then I ended it with if you disagree with me, I'm sorry. If you'd love to have a conversation with me and learn more, let's do it. I got a personal message from the guy who was that right wing using the Bible and politically I agreed with him, but scripturally I didn't. Uh, I got a message from him saying, hey, thanks, man. I didn't understand scripture. You helped me out there. That was perfect. Thanks for chiming in. I was like, sweet. The guy over here who was using it, he messaged me. He said, man, if you are serious and you actually want to have a conversation with me, I would love to dialogue with you because I know there's a lot I need to learn. Will not be put to shame. When we use God's word, and this is my favorite one. I, I, was, I was studying on the, on the armor of God a few years ago, and I, I taught a sermon on this on a Sunday morning. If we use the word of God as a bludgeoning weapon, as a sword, right? The word of God is the sword of the spirit. Like, if we use it to attack... We're misusing it because the Greek word for sword there is actually mistranslated sword in English. It's actually field dagger. The word of God is a field dagger. Woo! You know what a field dagger actually is in a Roman soldier's arsenal? It's a surgical tool. It wasn't carried by every soldier. It was carried by the soldiers who were trained in medicine. And so when a dude got an arrow that was barbed in their chest... Medic, medic, medic! He'd run over there, he'd whip out this little field dagger, and he could surgically and precisely remove the thing that was wrong, take it out, sew him up, dude's ready to go back to battle. That's what God's word is. God's word is not a bludgeoning weapon, it is a surgical instrument. And it is very, very sharp. Scalpels are very, very sharp. Don't play with them. That's why it says God's word... 
cuts through the bone and the marrow to the soul and the spirit. It's not so it's slicing off limbs like, bye-bye bone, bye-bye marrow, let me see your soul and spirit. No, it's cutting through so that it can get into what's deep. But when we use it in a wrong way, we begin to fall into the plan and the path of the enemy, not the plan and the path of the spirit. You guys tracking here? There is a form of godliness that denies the power. There is a zeal and a passion that is not rooted in truth and knowledge. And zeal and passion for God does not save. What saves? That's what it says in verse 13. It says, it's for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not our zeal and our passion for God that saves us. It's our humility and our human weakness that says, I cannot do this. I need God. Jesus, I'm calling on you. I am believing in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I believe, I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I am told that I will be saved. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's a little side note on our conversation about Calvinism and Arminianism last week. These are some, if if Romans chapter 9 is pro-Calvinist, Romans chapter 10 is pro-Arminian. To everyone who believes, to anyone who calls, everyone who calls, to him who will call. If you make the decision to say, I'm done doing it on my own, I'm done trying to make Christianity my own religion that fits me and me alone, and you're willing to submit to the word of God, you're willing to submit to the truth of God, then the truth shall set us free. And I'm not saying that salvation comes by reading God's word. No, but salvation occurs when we believe what God's word says. Because we, when we believe what God's word says, we will be like, man, I need Jesus. And when we give our heart to the Lord, when we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart, then we are saved. So God's word, I mean, God's word is the epicenter of what our lives should look like. So I said we can't make Jesus fit to us. We have to fit ourselves to Jesus. How do we do this? Uh, It's actually a lot easier than it sounds. You always hear the statement, Christianity is not an easy road. It's not an easy life. Well, it's not. I mean... There are hardships, there are troubles. Mm-hmm. But actually what to do to live a life of, as a Christian is actually really pretty easy. It's not a bunch of rules and regulation. It's not a whole bunch of like, you must follow every single one of these yeah. laws and you shall be saved. No, we can't do it. But if we put our faith in Jesus and we receive salvation and then we live like Jesus lived... That sounds pretty good. How do we know how Jesus lived? He lived 2,000 years ago. How do we know how he lived? How sh- Where is our example? We don't have a videotape of Jesus. We do have four different books that rec- record his life. 
and record what he did, how he interacted with people, how he interacted with government, how he interacted with oppressive governments, how he interacted as someone who was a part of a system, a political system, that was not nice to poor people, that was not nice to rich people. So if you ever want to learn how to deal with politics, take a look at what Jesus did. Here, here's one. If you ever want to learn how to deal with poor people, look what Jesus did. If you ever want to figure out how to deal with lawyers, look what Jesus did. Tax collectors, look what Jesus did. Scrub fishermen, look what Jesus did. Every single walk of life Jesus dealt with. Prostitute. Slave. The sickest of sick. Prisoners on death row. Jesus shows us how to deal with people. So we don't have to try and make people fit to us. We fit our lives with Jesus and everything's going to fall in place because when we do this, Anyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. You might say to me, well, Pastor Matt, you say I will not be put to shame, but I've been in conversations with people and I've been berated by people who persecute me and make fun of me and put me to shame because I'm a Christian. Has anyone ever experienced backlash for being a Christian? Okay, yeah. So being put to shame. Well, I could stand up here and say, well, not being put to shame doesn't mean in the temporal, but it's it's an eternal thing and you have the higher, the moral high ground and all that, you will not be put to shame. That's not what it means. What does Jesus say? He says, hey, when they're persecuting you, when they say they hate you, they don't hate you. They, they hate me in you. He says, they persecuted me, they will persecute me, but know that it is not you that they are persecuting. They're persecuting me. They hate me. They can't stand that there is me in the equation. They want to be establishing their own righteousness. They do not want to submit to the righteousness of God. And as a result, they are being ignorant. Romans chapter 1 talks about the same style and mindset of people. It says, professing to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them over to their uncleanness and their lust in their hearts. They dishonored themselves. Our lives as believers, our lives as people who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus should be to do the will of the Father. To be to do the will of Jesus. And we can see it in Scripture. This is what he goes on to say. He says, how then, this is verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Here's the reality. There is people out in the world. There is people, there, there's, there's humans in this room. There, everyone Everyone on some level 
tries to establish their own righteousness over the righteousness of God. And there is freedom from that downward spiral and that cycle of, I'm never going to be able to do it. There is freedom. It's found in Jesus. But how will they call on him? Remember, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? It's a good question. If you didn't know you needed something, why would... To the person who has cancer and doesn't know they have cancer... They're not going to just call up their doctor one day and be like, hey, I mean, I, w- I would like to start radiation treatment. I mean, I'd love to. Without a diagnosis of cancer, that sounds kind of ridiculous. But if they found out they had cancer, they might say, hey, I should maybe see what my options are. Chemotherapy, radiation, treatment. And, and, and you guys see what I'm saying? So to someone who doesn't believe, why on earth would they want to call? In order for someone to believe, though, they have to at least hear there's an option. You don't just wake up one morning and be like, hmm, I might have cancer. All right, I I have cancer. I looked on WebMD. Right? I mean, how does someone know they have cancer? And, and this is just a, I, I pulled the cancer example out of the sky, but it applies. Um. You don't just wake up one morning and be like, yeah, you know what, I got? I think I have cancer. No. There's, there, there's something that happens physically, and you go to a doctor to get it checked out, and they take a biopsy. They check, and they be like, okay, you may or may not have cancer. Let's run some tests, blood work, and all this stuff, and then it comes back. That's, that's this, how will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they... Here, if it has not been preached, or if there is no preacher. Here's here's the thing. There is apostasy in the future. There is apostasy happening. There was apostasy in the early church and in Judaism. There was apostasy before the flood even came. It is the plight of mankind. I want to be God. I'm going to do it myself. And it falls short every single time. Every single time. And hearing this, we know the truth. We know that there is only one way, that there is only one truth, and that there is only one life. And his name is Jesus. And salvation is found in Jesus alone. So how will they call if they haven't believed? How will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear if it has not been preached? If you believe... And if you truly trust the word of God as truth, then we should do what it says, right? So the the answer to Paul's question in verse 14 of chapter 10 is answered in our obedience and our faithfulness to trust the word of God. This is how I know that. Jesus said this. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, if you have put your faith and your trust in me, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. So not only are you going to be yourself, 
but you're going to be empowered by the supernatural to be even more effective in preaching and telling people about Jesus. But you're not just going to tell your neighbors. You're not just going to tell your family. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, your immediate surrounding, your Judea, your immediate region, your Samaria, the outlying providences, into the ends of the earth. Modern day translation to us who are living here. You will be my witnesses in Clackamas, in the greater Portland, Vancouver metropolitan area, in the Pacific Northwest, and to the ends of the earth. That's what this is saying. And if we truly believe it, and if we're not trying to make our own righteousness, but we're trying to live by the righteousness of God, true righteousness, then we submit to this, then the question answers itself. When we are faithful and obedient to be righteous, like Jesus is righteous, to be holy, like Jesus is holy. So what is all of that stuff about apostasy, uh, one apostasy to the next? What does that <coughs> have to do with us? I believe wholeheartedly that it should spur us on. That when we look and we see, Jesus said, I quoted Matthew chapter 24 earlier tonight. I'm quoting it again now. Jesus said, know the signs of the times. He says, one day there will be men working out in the field. And one will be taken away and the other left. We each have interactions with people who have heard about Jesus but have maybe not decided to follow Jesus. We, we, we have interactions with people who have maybe never heard of Jesus. How will they hear if it is not taught and preached and expounded upon and witnessed and, and, and told? We have a very real assignment. I, I, if, if I were to go back and listen to every sermon that we've recorded here on a Tuesday night, uh, I wonder what the tally would be when I end the sermon with Matthew chapter 28. Uh, I, I, at least two out of every three sermons come back to this because, guys, I don't get tired of saying it. It's the crux of our mission. Jesus said this. He said, all power under heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? It says, go and tell them about me. All of them. Teaching them to observe the things which I have commanded live the life of Jesus, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's that's an outward expression. Look at this. Romans chapter uh, uh, 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto salvation, and with the mouth one confesses, uh, and it is to salvation. This is, this is a perfect example. In the heart, there's an inward change. With the confession, there's an outward display. That's baptism. Baptism isn't some like, ooh, holy right, where it's like you... What it is, is it is a expression. It is a, it is a public demonstration so that the world may know you, something has changed in you. And you die to yourself and you raise new in Christ. It is a public display of an inward change. That is what confession is. So that's why Jesus tells us to go into all the world and lo, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Uh, which is right around the corner. I'm not going to put dates and any of that kind of stuff because we don't know and we're not supposed to know. Uh, but Jesus could come back anytime. 
And I'm going to close with this. Jesus gave a parable about ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom. And, and you're like, ten virgins? What? what? Okay. In the custom of the day, there were, the virgins of the town that come out when there was a big wedding and the bridegroom would be coming, and they would all have lamps. Because they never knew when he was coming, so they were told to bring extra oil. Because you never knew when the bridegroom was going to come. So if your lamp, because if your lamp went dim, you weren't allowed into the party. So they would have their lamps. Uh, in my mind, I, just, I picture the, 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 the lamp that Genie's in and the Disney version of Aladdin, you know. So I, I, it's, they got these lamps, so, so I'm holding it like this, you know. And it's got oil in it, and there's flame going. And Jesus tells the parable of the five foolish virgins. Because they were so stoked about the party that all they did was they brought their lamp and the oil that was in the lamp, and they lit the lamp. But of the ten that came, there were the five who were so stoked to be at the party, they didn't do what they were supposed to. And then there was the five that were wise, and they were stoked to be at the party too. They were so stoked, they're like, we're not missing the party. So they brought extra water balloons of oil so that if their candle went out, they could add more oil to it to keep it burning so as the night goes on they're like man where, the, where is this bridegroom he's not here yet well the five foolish ones their lamps go out and they say to the the wise ones hey you got some extra can we have some like man we only brought enough extra for ourselves and they light them up and they say well you can go to the market it's still open you can go buy more oil and the foolish ones said yeah i mean that's a it's our only option. So they left, and while they were gone, the bridegroom came. And the five who were prepared were led into the party. What does this mean? Jesus says that this is, this is like the end. And we don't know when Jesus is going to return. So we need to be on task. We need to be vigilant. And we need to be diligent for the things of the Lord. And I believe that comes wholeheartedly why be vigilant? Why be diligent if we're not spending time in God's Word? Because we won't actually even have a desire or a need to do those things if we don't actually believe and trust what God's Word says. God's Word is so important to the life of the believer. It should not be something that collects dust. A dusty Bible belongs to a dirty life. Bible that is covered in dust is reminiscent of someone whose life is probably pretty dirty too. But a Bible that's falling apart probably belongs to someone whose life is not. Charles Spurgeon quotes. He's, he's a solid pastor from the 1800s. But the reality is the more you saturate yourself in God's word, the more you die to your righteousness and you take on his righteousness, which is the place that we should all desire and want to be. Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave us your word. Uh, God, we pray that we would heed your word, that we would listen to your word, that we would read your word. Uh, God, that we would trust your word, that we would believe the things that you have said to us. Uh, God, may we not be ignorant. May we not be uh, unintelligible uh, to the signs of the times in which we live. Uh, God, may we not be scared uh, of apostasy, but may we stand strong in the midst of it. 
And may we live righteously because you are righteous. Uh, God, may we uh, be people who do not try and make you fit to us. But God, that we would align our lives with you. God, thank you for giving us the play-by-play of how you interacted with people. God, I pray that in everything we do, we would seek to be more like you. That we would interact with people the way that you did. And God, that we would be about your business. The power that we have received from the Holy Spirit, that we would not squander that and let it go to waste. But that we would operate in the full power of the Spirit. And God, that people would give their heart to you. God, we thank you that there is no partiality between Jew or Greek, uh, male or female, but there is one God, there is one Lord. And uh, God, you've given freely to everyone. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God, we thank you that you saved us. You saw fit in your infinite wisdom to save us. God, may we not let that be in vain, but may we be vigilant and diligent in the things of you. So God, we just thank you and we praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 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 Awesome, guys.